Welcome back to the Valkyrie Project podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Meg, and today we are talking to an old friend of mine, Summer. Summer and I met in flight school almost a decade ago at this point, in Army flight school. And since that time, we have become very good friends and have spent a lot of time and several cups of coffee and glasses of wine commiserating over the shared struggles we've had and the accomplishments and the defeats and victories that come with military service, in particular as a woman in a pretty high demand career. Uh, Summer and I sit down and talk a little bit about some of the incredible accomplishments that she's had as an aviator, or I suppose you could say aviatrix, over the last number of years, some of the opportunities she's had and taken, some of the difficulties that she's faced. We talk about how Summer has been able to find balance in continuing to pursue her dreams as an aviator while also raising two amazing kids, especially for those out there that are single moms that might be struggling, have a job, maybe two jobs, one in the military, one not, looking for inspiration and an example of a person to really look up to that has done it right and who has continued to still achieve their goals in spite of the challenges in her way, this is the podcast for you. I'm your host, Meg, and this is The Valkyrie Project. So how on earth have you been? Um, very well. Uh, very busy, very overwhelmed. Um, but other than that, very well. Overwhelmed by what? Work and mostly raising a teenager, I would say, is the number one contributor to that the last couple of years. And then um, learning to fly new aircraft, of course, um, was an undertaking. And... PCSing and moving and making a new life and a new new job. So all of the all of the things on the plate. You've been really damn busy since the last time I saw you. I feel like that's my entire life for the last 16 years. Like it's just been really busy and then eventually the kids are gonna leave and I'm gonna be not busy at all. And I don't I will probably be that, you know, old spinster that doesn't know what to do with my time. <laughs> Hopefully not. No, I don't think so. You got the hubs to keep you, you know, entertained and you guys will so enjoy that time when your kids get out of the house. I think so. We're planning like our second, um, our second life for that period. So I'm looking forward to it. Yes. You're a newlywed too. You weren't married the last time I saw you. Congratulations. No, actually today is our one year anniversary. So I haven't seen you in a year. Have I? Uh, -uh, I don't think so. (laughs) Not in person. So late congratulations. Thank you. Well, you know, we were out and we decided to get it done and they had an opening that day and then we went for pizza. So it was, you know, very formal. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> How's that going? Very good. Um, considering we've sp- actually, we tallied it up this morning. We've spent a total of eight weeks together this last year. So uh, we're, we're doing really well. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So... We have a lot of listeners that, um, you know, live a similar lifestyle to you. And that's a big part of why I wanted to have you on the podcast was that, you know, between being a mom and being a soldier and, 
as really a person that's in the guard, also a person that has a full time job, right? You you spin all the plates all the time. So that was really, you know, an inspiration to me to, you know, be friends with you and kind of, you know, just see you gracefully handle all this stuff that you're doing because I I don't spin quite as many plates and I don't know how you do it sometimes. But um so take us back to I think we should have a little bit of a story time where we walk back to when you and I first met. Okay. And like what your life was going through flight school. Let me paint the picture for everyone listening. This was about 10 years ago. It was. Um, so what, that would have been 2011. So just shy of a decade ago. Um, actually, uh, coming into flight school was probably the worst time of my life. Um, I had just left my, my then first husband, um, who was by that point a full-blown opioid addict. So I showed up at flight school probably in the worst place mentally I, I could have been. Um, I, I had no patience and no tolerance, and I was a mess emotionally. And I, I definitely wasn't in a good place to play the Army games, even though I'd been playing them for a long time. It just wasn't the right time. But Luckily, uh, flight school for me was sort of my salvation. It was my ticket out of that prison and that period of my life. Um, it got my kids and I out of the situation and and allowed us to start the next chapter and, and close that one, really. So for that, I'm very grateful. I had two kids, obviously um, single parent. And out of the three years that I was married, we were dealing with the dependency and the addiction um, for almost all of it. So it was chaos uh, for about three years. So coming into fight school, got there, I, I welcomed the distraction. It was an opportunity for me to start moving forward and reclaiming my life and my freedom and my financial freedom and starting to work through all that. So I, I really welcomed the distraction and the pressures. And, you know, obviously, you know, you don't have a lot of time to sleep or focus on other things in flight school. So between the kids and flight school, it was great. Um, it probably helped me push through until I was ready to deal with all of that baggage at a much later date and time, which would be many years down the road. So that's where I was um, at that point in my life. It, it really was a blur, and it was 18 months that I am, I'm very grateful for, and I'm very grateful to the Army for that opportunity because I would say that that really saved me and my kids um, at that time. Well, it's been a really fundamental career move for you in so many ways, but uh just to kind of backpedal and paint a picture for those listening that haven't been to a military flight school, we went through the army one together and you're talking like, I'm, I'm still baffled to this day that it was okay that we did what we did, that it was even humanly possible. Right. Considering, you know, you're up at what? Three, three thirty in the morning yeah, about to catch, to catch the mandatory bus to the flight line. So you can start Table Talk where some like incredibly old and wise Yoda type flight instructor is asking you these questions that you were supposed to have studied the night before because there's a metric shit ton of rote memorization and you're all bleary eyed and tired. And after he grills you on all these questions, it's like, okay, let's go operate a really incredibly expensive and dangerous aircraft now. I hope you had coffee. Like, oh my God. So you'd fly sleep deprived, have an hour, 45 minutes for lunch, really, because you have to like transport to get lunch or like, you know, if you're running late, God help you, you might not get lunch, but then you go sit in four or five hours of class in the afternoon. 
Um, I think I averaged about two or three full-size monsters every day just to keep my eyes open. I definitely drink an unhealthy amount of coffee. (laughs) Yeah. And then you get home and you have three more hours of studying and homework. And even if you're on a night flight or afternoon flight schedule, it's inverse that you would have the classes in the butt crack dawn. So like, how? How are we allowed to be so sleep deprived and tired and do this? Not to mention you feel completely inadequate every day and you're reminded of how inadequate and incompetent you are. So I think that plays a lot into it uh, as well. So you have the mental fatigue and then you have the physical fatigue. And uh, I'd like to shout out to the weather instructors who let me sleep in the afternoon classes because I'm pretty sure (laughs) they didn't make it through a single one of those awake. Well, at that time too, your son was a toddler, wasn't he? He so, I feel like he was little when I met you. He was. Oh, he was very little. So when I graduated, let's see, I went to walks. He was eight months old, and he stayed with my parents during that time. Walks is Warrant Officer Candidate School, for those there that don't go. know. And so obviously, you know, you're unaccompanied during that time. So the kids are with my parents and my son. So by the time he came to flight school and we got moved and settled in, he hadn't even turned a year old yet. So he was very, very young, very much a baby in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Golly. And I, I didn't really meet him till he was a little older, I don't think, because you and I didn't start hanging out till later. But talk about awkwardness and feelings of inadequacy. What was it like for you? And I think you knew I was going to pose this question because I have my perspective, which is maybe a little different. But what was it like for you to be one of two females in a class of 60? <sighs> I don't know that I I really felt out of place or awkward. Um, I have three brothers. I grew up in a very male-dominant family, um, and I I sort of welcome that environment. So for me, that wasn't an issue. I definitely didn't feel out of place. I know that you and I have joked about this before. We had that moment where we both kind of looked at each other, and it was like, are we going to like each other? What is yeah. this, what is this chick like? <laughs> so I, because I there's only more one option that. for a friend that's a girl in this class. So that was a huge <laughs> really I, I remember I think being a little more nervous about that than I was dealing with any of the guys in the class because most of the guys I had gone through Warrant Officer Candidate School with and they were all great. Uh, they were great friends and supportive of of me and the kids and helpful. And we had another single parent in the class who was uh, a guy as well. And we became really good friends and we helped each other out daycare schedules and transportation and all the logistics that goes into single parenting. So it, you don't really have anybody to talk to about the mom stuff, which was, which was difficult. Um, but definitely seeing you and then I'll never forget this. So we were, I think we were, we were in Bullock, I believe. And at the end of the officer later course, there we go. And we had to do a ruck march. And I remember you passing me. And I remember thinking that bitch. (laughs) 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 Cause we do that though. Like we don't mean to, but it's like, when you're, I feel like there's definitely still, no matter how comfortable you feel around your male peer group, when you're in a male dominated environment, and even sometimes in a, you know, a pretty evenly matched environment, I think you and I are both fairly classical examples of type A's and we just don't like to be bested by anyone. No. And I, you know, I'm not um, used to being the second place female and anything. So I remember you passing and it was a compliment. And I knew, I think I kind of remember at that point, I was like, okay, she's, she's my people or, you know, I, I, I have some <laughs> respect for her. So I, uh, 
Yeah, because God forbid it was with, I've always been in a male dominated job in the military the whole time, ever, ever. But um, it's it's always been bothersome to me when there's such a small population of of females to have most of them not performing well in physical tests. And it's less because I wanted to be vicious towards my own gender per se, but more so like, you know, you're setting the example for all of us, there's a little bit more pressure on us, you know, so we have to try that much harder. And when people fail to meet that standard, it's like, don't make it hard for everyone else to, you know, don't reinforce the wrong idea that we are incapable of you know, doing, performing the same way, which, you know, again, not meaning to be mean about it or anything, but that's just kind of how it felt. Oh, absolutely. And I, th- I th- it's very similar as a mom um, with a daughter. I notice those same feelings and, and both kids in general, my son and my daughter, but I push them and I have really high expectations and I want them to meet a certain, I want them to meet those expectations. I don't, I don't want to call it a standard, but I have expectations for them and, and they are very high. And sometimes I have to dial those down a little bit, but it's not so much because, you know, that's, I'm a parent and I want them to succeed, but also because they're a reflection of me and, and, and our little tribe and our family. And, you know, obviously kids go out into the world and, and people judge parents based on their kids' behaviors. And I want my kids to <laughs> represent <laughs> their mom yeah. and everything they've learned. So I think it's the similar, um, similar sentiment in those areas. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I'm not a parent yet, but a, a similar experience I can tie that to is as being a coach. You know, my athletes that that have done my programming or have done work with me, um, I would like them to move well and like them to have a a fairly uh, comprehensive knowledge and understanding of, you know, what goes into their programming and not be, you know, the person that does something arbitrarily without knowing why. And it's I can totally understand that taking a sense of pride in what you're doing. But I do remember feeling when I first met you just generally self-conscious overall because I was going through a separation at the time. And I remember specifically wearing my bridal set during flight school because I didn't want any guys to talk to me. Like, I'm just not even in the headspace for that weird flirtation, whatever shit right now. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because you guys told me, maybe it wasn't you, maybe it was some of the guys in our class, or maybe you were part of it. I don't remember, but somebody told me that like, they thought I was a frigid bitch when they met me in flight school because I wouldn't talk to anyone. But I was mostly just trying to be a fly on the wall and figure people out a little bit before jumping in headfirst with my outgoing personality because I've also been told in the past that I'm intimidating and I didn't want to come in like swing too hard, but it ended up blowing up in my face that I worked against my own personality because everybody's like, God, why were you so mean to us the first couple of weeks of flight school? Like, I wasn't trying to be. No, my I, social experiment failed. It reminds me of my. Um, I had. I used to call it my grocery store wedding ring. So I would wear it occasionally going out different environments or different places or to the grocery store. This was before uh, Mike and I got married, but or we're we're together. But I would wear. You know, I'd go to the grocery store and I would put on gross clothes. Um, nothing obviously that's figure flying and I'd wear my my fake cubic zirconia grocery store <laughs> wedding ring because I didn't want to be hit on at the grocery store wherever I may have been going at the time um man um, hashtag the things women do not to be bothered I have two gym gym memberships right now and one of them is at a gym of people that I'm really good friends with but I have a membership at like a 
a local whatever gym just to go in and knock out work that I've missed on the weekends because it's closer to my house and uh, the other gym I can hit up on the way home from work. But yeah, I've caught myself recently wearing a hat, not because I want to wear a hat, but because if I pull it low enough, I don't have to make eye contact with anyone. And maybe if everyone thinks I'm mean, no person, like some dude won't come up and like hit on me when I'm just trying to get my sweat on and go home. Yes. Or tell you how to properly do whatever movement you're trying to do. Oh God, get out of my face. (laughs) Well, we've come, I think we've come a long way. You're, uh, Continuing to juggle your aviation career with another full-time job. Well, I guess once part-time, once full-time. But how has that been for you lately? So when I, I PCS to Fort Belvoir, um, August 2017. So I actually, that was the point where I went from being traditional M-Day status, National Guard, two jobs. I had a full-time job in IT. And then I was doing um, the M-Day or National Guard stuff on the side same flight minimums, say all the same requirements that active duty component has to meet. So no change there. So really I was going in two to four times a week to the flight facility to make minimums and to get, to get training in. And then August, 2017, I had the opportunity. I applied for a program called the high performing leaders development program, I believe is what it was called. And I applied and got selected and had an opportunity to PCS and become full-time active National Guard out here at Fort Belvoir and fly here, which has been phenomenal. I was super nervous showing up at a at an active duty helicopter outfit. So 12th Aviation Battalion is here and was really nervous about, one, being a female and, two, being a National Guardsman. There are stereotypes that go with both of those, and we've all heard them, I'm sure. So um, I, I same thing, same principles. I, I wanted to make sure that I showed up and that I just did my job and I didn't let anybody down and that people didn't think that National Guard pilots were shitty pilots or anything like that or that I was going to be an issue because I, I was a guest in their house and they were letting me fly on their ATP, which was great. And then I got an opportunity the following year to get fixed wing qualified. And now for the last about two years almost, I've been flying fixed wing for the fixed wing unit here, which is a multi-compo outfit um, in the Army's inventory, which has been just an amazing learning experience and an opportunity overall. I, I, if you would have told me four or five years ago that I would be where I am today, I, I would have told you you were crazy. <laughs> yeah, man, it's like, it never ceases to amaze me the opportunities that present themselves, you know, the longer you stick around. And s- sometimes I think people go through certain experiences or situations in the military where they're, lo- they're no longer willing to stick around for said opportunities because of whatever completely justifiable personal reasons. Sure. I'm tired of the bureaucracy. I'm tired of the bullshit. I'm tired of leaders eating eating other people alive in the organization in order to get ahead. Whatever the case may be, personal, family issues, whatever. But you've stuck it out for a while and gotten to have really great opportunities. And like, now you're flying rotary and fixed wing. I, like the yeah. baddest ass of all the MFers. <laughs> I definitely don't feel that way. Um, fixed wing has been a whole new beast as, as much time as I spent in the rotary wing community and all my flying has been with the army. So, uh, you know, I, I feel comfortable there coming over to the fixed wing side of the house has been completely different. I, and I feel like I'm learning an entirely new subject area in a lot of ways, totally different type of flying, um, I do miss some of the tactical stuff, but just my overall knowledge as a pilot, 
I think has really grown, especially operating in national airspace. But you're absolutely right. I, I remember when the program that I applied for came up, they didn't say anything about flying. It was just warrant officers of a certain grade. And also they had to be advanced um, aviation warrant officer advanced course complete. So AWOLAC complete. So I met all the requirements. I had just got back from a deployment. So my, my ORB looked really nice. I think that helped. And I, I sent it off and I applied and it was really one of those, like they tell you basic training from day one. If somebody asks for volunteers, you raise your hand. It doesn't matter what they're asking for. And that was really what it was. And I just, I was like, you know what? We just gotten back from a deployment. I had just finished finalizing my divorce and dealing with all that. So I, I was ready for a change. Um, I had made it about a far, as far as I was going to in my, my then current unit. So I just raised my hand and I put in my packet and I remember apologizing to my readiness NCO at the time, Sergeant Bobish, uh, Bobish, if you're out there, just uh, thank you so much. But, um, and I remember looking at him and I told him, I was like, he was getting all the paperwork ready for me to send forward and send to the National Guard Bureau for review for the board. And I remember looking at him and telling him, I'm so sorry for wasting your time. I'm never going to get selected. And I feel like I'm making you do all this work for no reason. And he looked at me and he said, Summer, he said, you have as good a chance as anybody and you're as good as anybody that I know. And that was really a turning point for me when he said that. I Sounds like a great dude. Yeah. I, he was a huge fan of my corner for that entire process. And I've never forgotten that support that I got from him. So I, I really appreciated that. And I remember him telling me that. And I kind of, after that, I stopped doubting myself. And then I ended up getting the call and I, I got selected and I've never looked back and it has turned into all of these opportunities. And I think I got, I got a phone call from some of the warrant officers up at National Guard Bureau and they said, hey, you know, you've been selected and we were looking at your ORB and we noticed you're, you know, an aviator, obviously, and we want to keep you flying. We don't want to take you out of the cockpit and let you to continue to develop as an aviator. And I said, okay, sure. And he said, if we made this a flying position, would that detour you from taking the assignment? And I'm, I remember sitting in my office at the house, kind of grinning ear to ear. And I'm like, this guy has just offered me the golden ticket. Like, go be full-time pilot somewhere. And there were a few opportunities on the table at the time that we narrowed down. And I'm like, is this guy crazy? Like, does he really think I would turn this down if it's a flying position? And it was Title 10 uh, federal time. So I was like, this is... Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. And I remember getting off the phone and calling Mike and telling him and I was so excited and I, I could not believe it. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And it was, it was one of those opportunities where I raised my hand, I threw my hand in the hat. I was willing to make a change and try something different and do a development tour. And it turned into something great and it has completely changed the trajectory of my career and my future and my life after the army and all because I was willing to fill out an application and put together a board packet. I think if not anything else, that is a lesson to take the, excuse my French, fucking chance. Take the fucking chance. Yeah. Do it. Opportunity and, knocks, yeah, man. It, Time to go. Life is just too short not to, you know? Oh, it absolutely is. And I, I had this conversation with my grandmother recently, and I told her, you know, obviously she's in the, the twilight hours of her life, and we kind of talked about what their plans were, and, and I told her, I said, you know, and she and I are kind of in the same place. She and my grandfather have led a wonderful life in their um, hippie van traveling the world. Nice. And 
all over the place and they've seen and done so many things. They've met so many people. And I told her, I said, she's been a great example to me. And I feel like if life were to end tomorrow, I have done so many things. I've seen so many places. I've had so many experiences. I feel like I've lived a very full life at this point and I wouldn't have any regrets. And I, I think a lot of it is because I do. I'm very much that type A personality. And somebody says, Hey, let's go do this. I think I have an idea. And I'm the first one who says, let's do it. And Sometimes that bites me and sometimes it turns out to be life altering. What's beautiful about it, though, is you never don't learn something when you get bitten, you know, like as long as you keep an open mind, there's always something to learn from being bitten. But I also feel like good fortune or luck is in so many ways tied to opportunity. And like if you're a person that maybe thinks that you're not lucky, maybe you're actually lucky. You just aren't seeing the opportunities and taking them, taking a chance, taking a risk. Like so many of the the best things I've ever experienced were directly related to being willing to take a risk and actively practicing, you know, what I consider to be courage, right? Like courage is not the state of lacking fear. Courage is being afraid and doing it anyway, because you know that you need this experience, whether it's good or bad. Absolutely. And I'm one of those kind of oddities. I Fear excites me. I like that. Yes. It's sort of that feeling of a scary movie, which I hate scary movies, by the way, but I, it's that same, you watch the movie and you know it's going to give you that adrenaline rush. But, but fear sort of excites me in that way because I always know there's something really good usually on the other side of that. If I can get through it and have the grit to get through it or just to, to take that jump, there's 99% of the time I would say there's been something good on the other side for me. Awesome. Awesome. So you said something earlier about stereotypes for, you know, folks that are, you know, a particular gender and in a particular section of the military, a particular sector of life. And I was going to save this question for the end, but because you brought it up, it's now like been bouncing around the front of my head. What are your five favorite stereotypes about... The, either the military in general or women in the military, women in the guard, what are the, what are like the five stereotypes that you've encountered the most that either just make you roll your eyes or laugh or just say like, this is dumb. I can tell you without, without any hesitation, the number one is, is that she can't do the job well. I think, and that's, I know that's pretty broad, but I would say that's the number one mentality that I have seen um, yeah. in the way that my male counterparts assess not only me, but but other females, um, and I've observed that you know in the first person directly, and I've observed that as as they were making assumptions or analysis in some case uh, about other women, and I think there's a lot of stereotype that we just don't do the job as well, whether it be a physical job, whether it be a very mentally challenging job. Um, especially in aviation, you know, the, I've heard this statement a lot, women don't make good pilots. And maybe that's true for some, but I also have met some that I know were phenomenal pilots and they are everything that I hope to be someday. Um, one in particular was, was one, um, that really, when I was enlisted and part of the GSAB, she really set the standard of who I want to be. And when she walked in the room, everybody was quiet and everybody listened. It didn't, she was a W5 by the time I left for flight school, but it did not matter. O grades, warrants enlisted. When she spoke, people listened and she was very well respected and she was no frills. Um, she's very 
even keel, very calm, and, and she was everything I wanted to be. She was an IP, um, I believe an SP as well. IP, and instructor, pilot, pilot, SP, standardization, standardization pilot. pilot. Yeah. Yes. So, I, and I have met, you know, males who fill both categories. I've, I've met some, my male counterparts that were terrible pilots and very unsafe. And I've met some that were phenomenal. And I don't know that I'll ever be that good. <laughs> um, you know, and, and they really said, the example, I have a four-legged critter here who's wanting attention. Uh, I was so, wondering what that was. <laughs> <laughs> that. That is the number one stereotype I have seen. Um, sometimes it's it's been true, and, and other times it, it absolutely is not, and, and it's a false assumption. Well, let's see what else. I think needy comes up a lot, you know, or I guess maybe needy or expects special treatment or favoritism, um, exclusion from things like the dirty jobs or the heavy lifting, those types of things. Um, I remember one of my first field exercises with my unit after flight school. We were out there and we were uh, we were doing gunnery tables. So we were doing gunnery for a weekend or so. And I remember being out there and lifting the ammo crates and making sure I was in the field doing the heavy lifting because this was going to be one of my first sort of lasting impressions on these guys versus just a weekend or a, a It's so a critical flight. too, right? You can feel it. Like you can feel your first problem in a field problem or whatever it is, gunnery in a new unit is going to be so foundational for the way that people see you. And nobody else seems to give a shit. But in your own mind, it, it, I can share a similar perspective as a woman. You're like, I have to get in there and pay attention to how I behave here because it's going to define everything for the rest of forever. And it it's a lot more pressure than maybe it should be, but it's real. It is it, it very much. And, and you kind of see the eyes on you in those initial um, exercises or opportunities to to prove that you're, you know, a willing and able and equal member of the team. So I was out there and it was in the summertime and it was hot. And, you know, we're out there and we're lifting crates of ammo on and off the aircraft. And, um, you know, we're picking up brass and, and, and everything and all the dunnage. And I'm making sure that I'm doing all that and I'm out there sweating and I'm out there doing all the gross stuff and I've got ticks on me and everything else, you know? So I, I always looked for those opportunities to make sure that if we were cleaning up or we were doing anything, I was always one of the first ones to grab the trash or take the trash out or to do some of the heavy lifting or to do some of the cleaning, making sure that I wasn't expecting anybody else to pull my weight or to at least demonstrate that, Hey, I'm, I'm not above any, any task or any job, regardless of how minute it may be or how dirty it may be, um, I'm still willing and able, and I don't expect anybody to to do it for me. So those are those are, I, I, and I think those are really critical opportunities. And and I don't whether you believe it's right or it's wrong, I still it's it's the reality of the situation. So you, I think as a woman, it's really imperative to embrace those situations. Um, physical fitness, I think is another arena, probably another stereotype if we could call this number three, you know, they don't expect us to be as strong. They don't expect us to run as fast. And, and some of that is, is biology and physiology. And that's perfectly okay. I'm probably never going to be able to do as many pull-ups as my husband, whose biceps are like as big as my quad, uh, <laughs> but not without some help of some really great, um, enhancements or, uh, or medications, we'll call yep. them. So, but I, I've always embraced that and I've always taken opportunity to make sure that I can at least go in above and beyond what anybody expects of me. Yeah, I think a, a lot of what plays into that, too, is just, you know, you're I think you very much live your life from what I know you of a mentality of as long as I take responsibility for my own life, I get to have good things. 
Absolutely. You are the anti-victim. Um, and there, there are folks, women and men out there that suffer from a victim mentality, which we discussed at length in the last episode of the podcast, which we haven't published yet, but it, it was with Mark England of Procabulary, and a lot of what he does focuses on changing inner narrative in order to manifest the things we want in our lives. Like the stories you tell yourself have an impact on how you proceed with life. And so the example that popped in my head when you were discussing, you know, it's not a perfect situation, but it is what it is. It's like, you know, a victim mentality woman might walk out to that same gunnery exercise and be like, it's shitty. It's hot. I don't want ticks. I don't want to be sore and tired from carrying these ammo cans. And because of some whatever, a woman or maybe if I'm just lazy, you know, someone else will do it. Or maybe if I dismiss that, someone else will do it. Um, instead of that, choosing to see that as an opportunity and taking responsibility for the role that you play in that particular exercise probably won you so much credit with the people that you work with. And there are definitely assumptions out there. And, you know, I'd, I might be picking on one of the stereotypes you'd probably mention, but especially women that are attractive um, can sometimes come into the crosshairs as, well, surely you gave someone a, a sexual favor for your job. Or surely because you're cute, someone's helping you do the thing that needs to be done. And, you know, you didn't choose to be gorgeous, Summer. You didn't choose to be beautiful. God gave you that, right? So, you know, it's it's on you and you realize that. And I think it's, you know, I think that's partly why you're such a good role model for women in the military is like you took responsibility for for as much as you can influencing the way people perceive you. In the right way. I mean, you can only do that to some extent, right? You can't sure. force someone to think exactly what what you want them to think of you. But yeah, that, that was that was that was a big my deal. I was gonna say that was gonna be my next one is the um every, the initial assumption that you got somewhere based off of your looks. Mm -hmm. That one can be tough. I don't know that you're always like you said, you can't change someone mind someone's mind if, if they're set on that. Um, I've had all of those statements and then some made. Um, I remember when I walked into the work, uh, let's see, the first summer I got to fly counter drug and, and I showed up there and I was brand new. I realize how fucking badass you sound right now. My first year flying counter drug, just you're <laughs> killing me over here. So that was an opportunity I was given, uh, in, in all transparency, I found out. So initially when I got brought on was, uh, basically it was done to piss off a lot of people, uh, who I showed up at an organization that, that didn't have any females and one of the um, IPs wanted to disrupt the status quo and said, I'm, I'm going to take all of you old men and piss you off and I'm going to bring a female into one of our full-time operations. So that's what he did. Um, we became good friends and he was a great mentor and really pushed me to exceed any standards that anybody or expectations anybody had set for me. It was, it was always go above and beyond, always do more, even at the littlest, tiniest task. And that has really stayed with me throughout my entire career. But I showed up that first summer and I had just finished uh, RL progression, readiness level progression and flying. So I was a brand new pilot, which meant I did not know what the hell I was doing. And right. it was terrible. <laughs> I had real. I had a license. I was not a good driver, basically. So I was like a 16-year-old driver who had just left the, the BMV. And 
I showed up there and I was so excited. I'm like, yes, I'm going to, I'm going to do great. I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to show everybody that I can do this and that I'm, you know, I'm not a slouch. And, and I had all, I was, you know, really motivated and super excited, very wet behind the ears, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. And I showed up and one of the guys that I, I didn't know, I never really talked to before. Of course, I didn't really know anybody at this point, but he looks at me and he says, whose dick did you suck to get this, these orders? And I'm just like, what? Um, and that and who really, said, sort of, who says that even like, even if you actually believe that who opens their mouth and lets those words fall out as a human being, like, Ugh, and that was the first that was the first balloon pop you know I'm, I'm that kid that's hopping down the sidewalk with my balloons and somebody just comes along and stabs it and then I had another guy who told me you know oh back when I was on counter drug we didn't have female pilots and so I dealt with all of that all of, I, I throughout my entire career there's always been assumptions and I think the hard part of that and I fell into this for a while um, a year or two where it really got me down because it was so repetitive in the environment. It was so repetitive and you were either expected to be that way because that had been set by some other folks or you were the frigid bitch. So if you weren't the slut, you were the frigid bitch. Yeah. And, and I spent a couple years kind of in a bad place mentally because it was like, well, this, this is all I'm ever going to be to these people. Um, and I, I, I did, I stopped trying and I stopped working as hard for quite some time because of that. So I'd, I'd say that was, that's probably my fourth stereotype. Um, and I, that's one that's really hard for me because I, I do, I want everybody to like me and I want to be nice to everybody and I want to help everybody. Um, but you can't, and you're not always going to be everybody's cup of tea. And that's, I still struggle with that today. And I have to verbally remind myself of that from time to time. And that's okay. Yeah, I'm I'm exactly the same way and it's it's so frustrating because you spend so much of your time in this state of like what did I do wrong? Mm-hmm. You know, and and I think part of that is a symptom too of just being one of those people that's naturally very hard on yourself. Uh, is you know wondering what you did to make someone else dislike you and, and the reality is, you know, disliking someone is entirely their choice and like why am I spending my mental energy fixating on this? But yeah, I fall into the same trap a lot. So but it's so hard to turn that off. It really is. It, it is. It's so difficult. It, it takes like, for me, it is an active decision to, in the moment when I'm like absorbing the bad feelings from that event, saying to myself, I'm not responsible for that person's feelings. I'm not responsible for how they see the world. There are other people out there that like me. There are plenty of other people out there that, you know, respect and appreciate who I am. But it's, it's it's difficult to stop yourself in that moment and talk yourself through that because you don't want to be the person that spends their life like self-coaching in the brain all day long, right? But that's certainly more productive than like self-deprecation on a constant basis inside your own head. It is. And, and one of the tools I use occasionally when I get, and I get too down on myself or someone that I, you know, I, I feel like I can't really quite make them I can't appease them or they're just constantly frustrated with me or whatever the case may be. I always, I'll stop occasionally and take inventory and I'll I'll remind myself and it's that internal coach, which can be kind of annoying, but it works. And I take inventory of the people who are my friends and who are, who are my supporters. And, and, you know, I look at them and I look at the caliber of person they are and the caliber of worker they are. And, and I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm doing okay. I'm not a bad person. I'm a pretty good person. And these people think that I'm, I'm worth my salt. So I'm, I'm doing okay. Yep. I've, um, I've used that technique and I've also used the technique of just 
being grateful for all the good things that I do have. And it helps me recage and remember how insignificant that one negative person's opinion is in terms of the grander scheme of my life. Like, my life rocks. I get to sit down and host a podcast with people like you and write workouts for some of the, like, baddest ass women in the military out there just getting after their goals. Like, my life is, um, I'd say, pretty good. But uh, sitting down and, and thinking through a list of no shit. I'm grateful I have food on my plate. I'm grateful I have a roof over my head. I'm grateful I have a wonderful husband. I'm grateful I have a healthy body and, you know, a sound mind and all these things. And it, that usually helps too, to remember how insignificant those other people are. I, for me, perspective was a huge thing. It took, um, when I left my unit to come to Belvoir and I was really tired of the military and I was tired of the games and the bureaucracy and I was tired of watching the guys play a game that I couldn't play. I wasn't allowed to play like they play. And, you know, you can't, you can't be the female that, you know, sleeps around with everybody, regardless of what the guys are doing at at the unit, you know, that think it's, you're expected to, you're held to a different standard than that. but Right, like even if you're single and, you know, an adult and perfectly allowed to date and sleep with whoever you want and do the thing, yeah, like that in a lot of ways impacts a woman's reputation than it does a man's, depending on the circles. But that's, you know, it's a gross generalization, but I've found it to be true. Oh, it absolutely, from my experience, it's, it's absolutely true. You know, it doesn't matter, like you said, if you're single Whatever the case may be, um, if you show any signs of promiscuity or dating around or just enjoying being single or you don't have interest in being married or whatever the case may be, that is frowned upon for our gender, from my experiences. Um, I'm sure other folks have had different ones, but that has been the general consensus I've seen. And I left an environment where that was sort of the social norm among the men. Married, single, didn't matter. And it was perfectly acceptable and it was joked about and promiscuity and was whether they were single or married oh yes absolutely uh, gross so and it was a really toxic environment and so when I left there you know I, I remember leaving in a state of I'm not good enough I'm I'm in the wrong field I don't have what it takes to cut the mustard and I'm never going to make these people like me or make them happy I got outside of that and I got to see I got a different perspective and I got to see a broader scope of, of the institution of the army and aviation. And it really made me realize to kind of circle back around to what you were just saying, how insignificant some of those people really were and their opinions, really how insignificant their opinions were is, is really what I mean by that. And, and it was very freeing and very liberating. And, and then I work with these folks who are of a completely different caliber and experience level and very worldly. And, and I work with them and, they see a lot of potential in me and, uh, you know, they have had no issues with anything. And I'm like, okay, I can do this. And to get their opinion, to get their feedback really has been super helpful. And just to remove myself from that toxic environment and have a different perspective has, has been great for me. I don't know that I would still be in the army had I not left that organization. I, I probably would have finished out my obligation and I probably went on, would have, would have continued in IT in the civilian sector. Yeah. Which is totally not the greatest expression of how awesome you are, like, uh, I think. Uh, I, 
You know, like, like you would be good. You would be a good waitress because you're nice and detail oriented. But, you know, Um, you're also a great pilot. And yeah, like the the trade off would have been so big if you were not courageous enough to stick through the hard shit. No, it wouldn't have. And I try to tell my daughter this now. So I have a daughter who's who's 15. And, you know, we're talking about colleges and, and her future and what that looks like. And, you know, all the typical mom questions, what do you want to be when you grow up? And what do you want to study? And, you know, you can't study this because you'll never get a job. So we have all these, these normal parent conversations and and mom wearing conversations. And I tell her a lot that every time I have fought through, or I have grinded through a hard time or hard period to get to the other side of that and to come out the other side, whether it was from, you know, getting out of my first marriage that was extremely toxic and dangerous, just flat out dangerous for many reasons, um, and fighting to get my freedom and my financial freedom back, or flights, fighting through fight school as a single parent with two kids, <laughs> uh, or, you know, dealing with a really toxic unit where, you know, I had my ass grabbed when I was out of the aircraft pre-flighting. I had all those comments that were made to me. I had some really unfortunate experiences when I was TDY. Um, so you for sure experienced firsthand sexual harassment and assault. Oh, absolutely. Um, in the in the job. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. Um, whether it be through verbal or or physical, absolutely. Um, but I always tell her, no matter what I have fought through to come out on the other side, it has always been worth it. Um, when I wanted to give up, or when somebody else made me want to quit. I'm so glad I didn't because it has always paid off to grind through. So right now she's taken some pretty tough chemistry classes and things like that, which in her world from her perspective are huge. And these are really big moments in her life and they're very important to her. And she gets discouraged and just trying to, to show her that, Hey, this little bit of pain, this little bit of frustration, this little bit of work in the big scheme of things will pay off dividends on the other side. And you'll be so glad you stuck it out. And, and I've been the same way. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. I think we've come to the end of our five stereotypes, but they they brought me to a place that I thought they might, which I hope they would, <laughs> which was, you know, like, there's so much that women in the military fight against. You know, there's so many strong currents that come with broad sweeping assumptions. And let's be honest, ladies out there listening, you know who you are. There are women out there that say mean and hateful and judgmental things about women in their own tribe oh, simply because they don't know them. And yeah, sometimes there, you know, sometimes there are women in the military that are just crappy human beings. And you're like, why are you here? Just like there are with men. Um, at the same time, it doesn't do anybody service, I think, to make harsh judgments or unfair, unfounded, uneducated judgments, whether you're man, woman or otherwise, um, And I think that, you know, there's so many opportunities for us to build a community of support and a network of support, you know, which if you if you or I were, you know, catty or divisive women, we would have never become friends. And you would have always been that chick on the other side of fly school class that was just like, I bet she's a bitch. Like, you know what I mean? (laughs) If we didn't like try. And so maybe that's I don't know, maybe that's my request to, you know, all the women out there listening to be part of the damn tribe instead of working against it instead of, you know, because you need those people. You need that tribe when you come up against all of those misconceptions and stereotypes and you need a support network when you're going through those hard things. 
even if it's men. Absolutely. And I, uh, I do think that's one thing that my male counterparts do better than we do as females. Uh, They're much more welcoming uh, for the most part. I've seen some of it on their, on their end of the spectrum too, but they're much more welcoming. Um, They, they bring guys in and there's like, Hey, you know, cool. Welcome. (laughs) There's, there's not a lot of catty backstabbing, negative comments, hatefulness, jealousy, um, just in general, I have seen it, but it's definitely, I feel like not as overwhelming or it's not the first course of action. I think where it can be a lot of time with women. Yeah. Yeah. And I've seen that too. Um, it's unfortunate when it happens, but there's so many opportunities that present themselves in, you know, a military service profile where people say the cliche thing of, leave the unit better than you found it, you know, make it a place that you would want to be. And it's, it's super cliche, but I believe in that fiercely. There's a quote from this movie, The Departed, um, where uh, Jack Nicholson's character says, I don't want I don't want to be a product of my environment. I want my environment to be a product of me. And I think everybody has that power. But they do. And I think that's more the reality most of the time, especially in, in military units, or at least in army units the unit is a product of the people, uh, not the other way around. And if you make a very divisive, shady organization, or that's what you are, that's what your organization is going to be. You, But I do, I think the people create it, and we can shift that either way. Mm-hmm. And similarly, if you completely invest in all the negative aspects of a given unit, which is comprised of people, and you determine for yourself that that's how it's always going to be at that unit, then you have made, in my opinion, the choice to remove yourself from the formula of success. Like you have given up on the piece of the pie that you, that you were given to say, like, this is my area to fix. You know, you're, you're essentially walking away and and helping that cancer grow. So um, that, that's been something that that was something difficult for me to get past in particular units that were a little bit more toxic or struggling to get through difficult times. And, you know, you can be frustrated. Yes. And you can share those frustrations with your peers and, you know, share the communal suffering that's happening for everybody in a unit. But until you're willing to take responsibility for this is my unit, I'm here. I'm part of the answer unless you can do that, it's just going to stay shitty for everyone else it falls on. It will. And I think you, that was probably one of your best qualities. Um, one that I, I, I'm much more standoffish a lot of times or, or can be much more shy or hesitant to, to bring people in. But I, I feel like inclusivity is something that you do exceptionally well. And, Aww, you know, thanks. Hey, I'm having a barbecue. Everybody come over or, Hey, we're going to go do karaoke. Let's all go. And I, I've seen, that's been one of the keys to successful units, I think, is that inclusivity and that wanting to bring everybody in. I think a lot of units can be very clicky. Um, and you have your your chosen ones, as, as I've heard them frequently called, but or you have those units where everybody sort of hangs out together and everybody's always included and you have that good cohesion. And I think that's something that you do very well. Well, thank you. Um, and I agree with your assessment about the clickiness. And I think sometimes it's like, it's a automatic kind of spontaneous thing when certain clicks come together just because they have similar personalities or similar interests, whatever the case may be. And sometimes it's a good thing, right? Because 
if you connect really strongly with someone, they're your friend forever in some cases. Like you and I had a strong connection and we can go a couple years without talking. And it's like, we're just picking up where we left off, even if we've both changed, you know, and that's, there's like a handful of people that I keep in my pocket forever because of those things. But when the click becomes talking now in the context of a unit again, when, when the click becomes the center of gravity and they wield all the power and they influence all the decisions that the leadership makes, that is a recipe for a toxic unit as well particularly because everything's one-sided if you have the wrong standardizations pilot the wrong sp um who for those listening is essentially like the godfather of you know the unit like what they say goes kind of thing because they're the commander's trusted pilot like it could screw everyone else over in an epic way especially if that person has the wrong idea about you and they're able to plant those seeds of negativity in the command's ears like that's this one clicks or are not good and i think you lose another thing not only do you alienate people and then you know people when they don't feel like they're part of the group obviously that makes you uncomfortable and it makes your job it can deteriorate your job performance it makes you feel unwelcomed and you're unhappy so obviously you don't perform as well but i've also noticed another byproduct of that are those clicks is that you those development opportunities and those training opportunities those learning opportunities are typically taken away from the people that aren't in the cliques and they're hoarded or more readily given to the people that are in the cliques. Well, in aviation in particular, you, you know, really your ATP is only as strong or your group of pilots is only as strong as your weakest pilot. So if you're not giving those guys the opportunities to learn or to do more advanced tasks or to go to schools and you're only giving those to the same people over and over again, you're deteriorating and you're making an unsafe environment for everybody that gets in those aircraft. And I think that's one of the hardest things. And then guys get disgruntled and they're like, well, I'm, I'm not getting the training opportunities. I'm not getting these development opportunities. I don't get to fly the cool missions. I do the same boring stuff. Um, and then they leave, they don't stick around or they don't feel any dedication or they don't want to pick up the, the mundane tasks or the mundane schools when they come around because they don't ever get to do the cool stuff. So why would they stay? Um, so that's another byproduct of those clicks that I think is really detrimental and drives a lot of people away or, or drives them outside of the military. Absolutely. Yeah. I've seen it happen. Um, and maybe even not out of the, the military, but out of the MOS or, you know, out of that particular unit. And, you know, there's certainly exceptions to the rule or, you know, everyone has seen the person in a military unit that just simply can't perform no matter how much mentorship they get and or support or help they get, um, continually fail in a particular area that's critical for whatever reason. That's a different case. I have seen people that are not part of the MOS dense population, the support people, for example, you know, think about it, thinking about an aviation unit, it might be your supply guy, right? Mm -hmm. They're not, they're not a pilot. They're not a maintainer. Um, they have a, an, MO, an MOS that could apply in multiple units, but they just happen to be there. That person is repeatedly passed over for schools. They're not getting professionally developed. They're not getting mentorship. They're not getting support in their career progression. Those are the people that are hard to hold on to, but they're so critical for what's happening is, is the biggest irony. Like everyone needs what the supply guy can do. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think there's there's so many facets, like good facets of leadership that we kind of just covered. But I think that, you know, going into a new decade in the year 2020 and looking at like 
you know, what the U.S. military and Department of Defense looks like in the coming years, especially as women are increasingly more integrated into combat arms roles and special operations roles that they weren't able to have access to before 2016. An excessive focus on fixing leadership styles is going to be huge. And it's not it's not just because I don't think there's anything wrong with people's personalities, per se. There are some personalities that um, are toxic, but for the most part, every human being is adaptable, right? But an emphasis on leadership with real integrity and leadership with real caring, because I've also traveled in circles where officers eat their own and they're just willing to say and do almost anything to advance their own careers at the expense of not only their subordinates, but their peers. And it's like, this is not a unit. This is not a family. This is not a community. This is just utter chaos. It is. And I, most of the leadership that I have fallen under, they typically I could fall, I could divide them amongst two categories, two macros, I guess you could say. And it's leaders that are doing what's right for the units and leaders that are doing what's right for their career. And I think pretty easy to, to decide which one of those tends to be more toxic or you guys don't want to support the leadership or they don't want to work as hard for the leadership or they don't, they lose that loyalty to the leadership. It's like, well, this guy's just, or this gal's just doing what's best for her career. She doesn't care what's doing, what they're doing for the unit or the future of the unit. And, you know, they're gone in 18 months, right? So mm-hmm. it's all short term um, and nearsightedness rather than, Hey, some of these guys, especially on the warrant officer side or the enlisted side, they might be in a unit two, three, five years. Um, I've known some guys that have homesteaded and been in a unit for, for back-to-back tours and they have to deal with those repercussions for long-term. So you do it. But what I've also noticed is that guys that do what's right for the unit or they, they focus on the work and take care of their people, they tend to do well. Eventually the guys are doing what's right for the career. Of course, you know, some of them get through, but people know that and that becomes apparent and you start to get higher and higher in rank and the pool becomes smaller and smaller. You, you know, those, who those people are. And isn't it terrifying to see how much your reputation follows you? Like everywhere. It used to freak me out when I would get somewhere new and people would say, oh, I heard you were coming. How the hell did you know I was coming? I've never met you. Like, what? Your reputation is, it's not how it should be, I think, in the sense of, like, the wrong person could meet you. Like, a person that's a real asshole could meet you and at one moment decide they don't like you, but because they're influential, then they can paint a bad reputation for you for everyone. But I think typically people can outwork that. Like people that are good at their job can outwork that over time. It just it takes a little bit more effort. But um, yeah, it's it's terrifying how and how small the community gets, as and it gets smaller and begins to close in around your ears the longer you're in. It's, it's, so... it's kind of an awesome thing and also like scary. Like you can't really. There's no disappearing into another unit. Someone's gonna have heard about you or know someone that you knew, and it's no. bizarre. I showed up. Uh, so when I moved out here in PCS to Belvoir and I showed up at the active component and I remember two of our, two of our guys from uh, flight school that I was in primary. And then I also one of the guys we had in our bullet class was also in, in the unit as well and ended up flying with all those guys. So it was hilarious to see it full circle and you're, it really is. It is a tiny community within, within an already tiny community. And it is terrifying. Cause you're like, 
oh God, I pissed that guy off once or, oh God, that guy thinks I'm the worst pilot ever. And what did he tell people? And, um, but I, I do, I think you're right. You can absolutely outwork. And I, I think most people with any amount of experience know that, okay, here's what people say about him or her. Let's, but you still have an opportunity to make those first impressions because we all know people make their assumptions or they, they have their opinions about people, but they're not necessarily true. And they're definitely, um, not engraved, engraved in stone by any means. Yeah, I could agree with that, certainly. So I would like to pose a couple questions to kind of wrap this a little bit. Um, you've, in many ways that I admire, kind of like live this life of, you know, you don't, you don't dodge curveballs or like outrun obstacles you just either knock them down or push them out of the way shove through them with like a, a bald fist and a, a grimace on your face like i'm taking this life it's mine and like i i find a lot of inspiration in you and in, in looking forward to you know having my own kids one day and like being um a mom that you know sends people out into the world that are good people that are going to make it better right because that was a charge that a mother has, what would you say are your top three nuggets of wisdom for our listeners out there in terms of motherhood um, that can be raising a teenager or, you know, anything else really like the big lessons that maybe you would have liked to have learned early on that you, you want to share with others? So one of them is kind of actually, you, you pretty much just said it, uh, or at least paraphrase it is I read one time, and this was years ago, you know, we are raising adults. We're, we're not in the business of raising children. We're in the business of raising adults. So that is something that has stuck with me through all phases of raising my kids. I want them to be very independent. I want them to be self-thinkers and problem solvers and critical thinkers and all of those things. I want them to go out into the world. And I tell my daughter all the time, my son is nine, so it's we don't have these super deep conversations yet. Um, but I tell my daughter as she's getting ready to go out into the world on her own all the time, I said, look, I want two things from you. I want you to be a good person. And, and typically I, or I'll substitute that with be a kind person and the value of kindness. And I want you to be able to pay your own bills. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of important. (laughs) I'm like, you can just be kind, be a good person and you pay your own bills. You are doing a great service to the world right there. Um, and the rest of it, you know, whatever your profession or career may be or your wealth or whatever you accumulate outside of that, it's all secondary. And then another piece of advice that I have always carried with me is that, you know, I'm, my children are an extension of me, but I'm not raising myself. My kids' hopes, my kids' dreams are all very much their own and they are individuals completely separate of me. So I try to be very cognizant of when I push them towards something or I I set those expectations, I make sure that I, I realize what their hopes and their dreams are. And I want to support them fiercely in whatever those may be. And I don't want to push them towards what my dreams or failed endeavors may have been. I don't want to live through them. I want them to live their own life. And sometimes that's really hard. (laughs) That's extremely hard and I probably don't do it well all the time. (laughs) I could have been a movie star. Now you're going to go do it. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Uh, Susie is a, is big into basketball, which was always by far my, my absolute favorite and best sport. 
and I had a lot of aspirations in that arena that did not end up developing because I became a very young mother. So I tried to always um, make sure that it's an endeavor she wants and not not something that I want. So I'm constantly analyzing myself with with what I say and, and the advice I give her in, in that department. Mm-hmm. Same thing with my son. He's he has all of his own interests and he loves star Wars and soccer and all these things that I was never into as a kid or barely as an adult until I got the shoulder. So I try to be really supportive. He does, he's doing band this year. So all these things that I have no experience in. So I try to fiercely support whatever interests or talents they have. Um, third. Oh God. I don't know what the third piece is. Um, I, I would say as cliche as this is, is just be content with doing your best. I have so many doubts as a mom and you, you know, today's society and the social media heavy society that we live in, you've got Pinterest and Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat. And now we have TikTok that I'm now learning. Oh Lord. Oh my God. (laughs) Please don't make me learn another social. I think I just had a brain aneurysm sitting right here. (laughs) So I, there's all these mediums to compare yourself and to feel extremely inadequate. And of course, we've all heard, you know, people put their best life on social media, which is very true. And I try to just remember, I'm doing the best for my kids within my scope of capability and financial um, standing and, and all of these things that factor into what kind of life we provide for our kids. A lot of people would look at the life I've led and say that, you know, maybe it wasn't the best for my kids, or we've moved around too much, or they've been in too many schools, or I should have kept them at home or whatever, you know, their judgment may be. And I could let that get to me, but I don't, I have fiercely pursued my dreams and I brought my kids along for the ride. And there have been some bumps, some really big and and some very small, but I know in my heart, I have given 110% to my kids and trying to make them a good person and, and make them ready for the real world. And that is enough. And that has to be enough or you will drive yourself absolutely crazy, especially if you live any type of lifestyle that is outside of the suburban white picket fence, you know, all the family lives within five minutes and we go to church Which on is Sunday. not really even the oh. norm anymore for most modern people of the year 2020. Like that, that white picket fence is rare anymore. Um, but I think that that third, I think it's all incredible advice that you've just given her, you know, wisdom nuggets that you've shared with everyone but i think that third one too can really apply to every aspect of life like there is no perfect scenario anytime anywhere ever there is no perfect child raising technique there is no perfect job there is no perfect spouse there is no perfect training program and there is no perfect diet that will make you (laughs) i wish you guys could see summer's eyes rolling right now it's fantastic it does none of those things exist and i find comfort in knowing that mm-hmm. because surely if there is no such thing as perfect then i can make whatever reality i'm living the right reality for me and it takes a lot of pressure off it does and you just have to it, it's a discipline and it's a practice and you constantly have to say it's good enough and i'm doing my best and that's okay and and that is it and and just leave it at that absolutely could not agree more. So speaking of in the vein of like, you know, fitness and nutrition and like different aspects of life that like play into the bigger picture of, of well-being and all of that, what are you doing to stay in shape? 
trying not to put too much food in my mouth. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't mean that to put you on the spot. I'm genuinely curious. No, that, so... (sighs) (laughs) (laughs) That's really all I'm doing right now is trying to not put too much food in my mouth. So the last couple years have been pretty tough for me having a teenager who has this budding life and all these interests and she needs a driver. So I'm an unpaid Uber driver. That's my second full-time job. And you should start charging her. Oh, I, I really should, but she's so broke. It's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> so I have not had much time to myself this year. So between learning a new job and running a maintenance shop and learning a new airframe and, and going from rotary wing to fixed wing. So completely different ball game. Um, and then having a teenager, and now my son is of the age where he does soccer and band and, and all he has all these interests and extra productivities. I don't have much time for myself. So the last couple of years, I have not been in nearly as good a shape as I was um, for the several years leading up to that. Uh, I, I stayed in CrossFit pretty religiously after you introduced me to it in flight school or some variant of whether I was when I was in Iraq and I was doing my own stuff in the gym or in an actual affiliated box somewhere stateside. So, and I've had to be very forgiving of myself because this is the first time in, you know, a long time in in a decade about that I haven't been able to see my abs and it's like, okay, it's all right. This is okay. Is seeing the abs is so overrated in the, in the world of an obesity epidemic, like you're doing well, but it's hard. and, And, you know, I don't, so I've always been a, pretty much a PT max score. And then, you know, the last couple of years, I just haven't, and I haven't had the time to dedicate to fitness. I don't get to spend five or six days in the gym. Like I used to love to do two or three hours a night because my kids don't think hanging out at the gym is cool anymore. And they have their own practices and their own things that they want to do. So I've had to kind of be forgiving and say, Hey, this right now, this season of my life, I just, I'm going to focus on eating pretty healthy and and staying mildly active and okay, I'm not going to be, you know, deadlifting 300 pounds right now. I'm not going to be running a, you know, six to seven minute mile and that's okay. And, you know, my daughter will be driving here in the summer and I'll get a lot more of my time back to myself and I I plan to, to attack. Yeah, that's exciting. And I think you've really hit on something so critical that yes, there are seasons to life. And I think it's easy to for folks that are, you know, female military athletes or military athletes or just athletes in general, anyone that, you know, has a physical goal that they're trying to meet in sport or otherwise in fitness uh, and performance that you cannot, there, there is no reality where you can always perform as if you're going into game day without inching yourself closer to illness or, you know, just crippling injury. Um, There are things like adrenal fatigue and central nervous system burnout and, you know, actual physical overuse injuries. Um, Elevated cortisol over time is not a good thing. But generally, you know, we can't, all that to say, we cannot always be in the kind of shape where we can go crush that number one peak goal tomorrow. Right. You have to be willing to accept that a lot less is good enough, like maybe two or three days a week of training is good enough right now until the conditions change and I can put more work into that. I think that's so important 
especially for folks like you and I that are really hard on ourselves. Absolutely. To to take a step back and and look at the grander scheme of things. Like, you know, maybe six months kind of low key during this time in my life where I'm busy and learning a new thing is completely fine. And, you know, when the time comes again, I'll get back at it. But it's not it's not one of those things where you, f- you know, you fall off the bandwagon and you are forever more forbidden from <laughs> remounting the bandwagon, right? Like the wagon's still there. You might have to run a little faster to get back on it, but that's okay. It will always be there. And I, uh, I, I think having that flexibility instead of being so rigid, especially like you said, somebody like yourself and me, I, I like to do everything in my life 110%. I want to be the best at everything I do. And I know that that's not realistic. So I know there are people listening right now that probably roll their eyes at that, but that is a very innate drive I have. And I've been that way since I was a kid. I've always been a perfectionist and I always want to be first and the best or the best and the fastest and the strongest and the smartest and can't do that all the time in every single category. As much as I believe that I can, it's, it's not realistic. Yeah. Girl, I know exactly how you feel. I'm the same way. I'm the same way. And it's less for it's less for the pleasure of like defeating other people really. That's not for me part of it at all so much as like Oh no. Just seeing how far my own potential will take me kind of thing. It's a, uh, being satisfied with myself. I and being mm-hmm. satiated with my own accomplishment. It is it has nothing to do with other people. It is it is a completely internal self-driven desire but that is has nothing to do with other people and and their aspirations I love to see other people succeed and and come up around me as well but for me personally I I feel like I have failed everybody else if I'm not the best or, or striving to be the best yeah it's a blessing and a curse, right? It is. because It helps it us to be a high. <laughs> it's hard. I had this conversation at one point with a guy I worked with. It's like, well, you never get in trouble. I was like, well, yeah, because like I'm constantly paranoid like that I'm going to do something wrong to get in trouble. And it's, you know, turns my hair gray, but at least I haven't been fired from a job yet. So, I mean, you know, there's a middle road where this crazy like obsession with success that I have is worked out for me. So I'll accept it for what it is and, you know, try not to lose too much sleep over it. No, you shouldn't. And I, I'd say I, one of the things I did want to say, I think as much as we've talked about some of the frustrations and hardships of, of being in a male dominated environment and those female stereotypes, I will say what I have learned and I don't think I would have learned it anywhere else than in the military is, is working with, with all these guys who just expect you to show up and do your damn job. And they're, they don't want excuses or the whys or in anything else that just do your damn job, just get it done. End of discussion. And it's no frills. And I think that mentality has really been helpful for me throughout my entire life, especially raising kids and trying to juggle all these different things on my plate. It's just, you just get it done because it's what has to be done. End of discussion. And that has been really tough. Uh, sometimes when you're, you're too tired and, and you want to just give up or you, you maybe you want to take the easier road as is, is you just get the job done and nobody wants to hear your excuses and you just finish. And, and I have learned that from my male peers more so than I have anybody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's a very sage advice and really to the other side of the coin for that, for the worry wart types out there is that, 
often when you're worrying about things that you think matter, no one else is paying any damn attention, particularly when it comes to people's opinion of you at work or like, did I handle that conversation properly? Or did I, you know, did I piss someone off or, you know, um, get stick in somebody's craw the wrong way when I did X, Y, Z. A lot of times in, in this particular arena, no one else gives a shit about those kind of things as much as you do. If you're the type to like worry and replay conversations in your own head over and over and over. So as long as you got the job done and you didn't, you know, catastrophically disrespect someone, you're probably fine. Yes. So with that said, I think that was, I was going to ask you for three pieces of advice for our female military listeners. And I think, I think you kind of just gave me one just then, which is get the job done. Sure. Would you, would you be so kind as to grace us with two more, more jewels from your tool toolkit? I think one of the best things you can do to, and, and this is part of just getting the job done, but a little bit more in depth is, and I think this is something where I've learned my male counters parts where you earn their respect, not just, just getting the job done without making a fuss or complaining or, or looking for recognition, but also knowing your job. If you know your job, especially in such, such an academic dense field like aviation, um, where it requires constant study and you have to be in the books. If you do that and you show up and, and yes, the expectation may be a little bit higher for you because they're expecting you to not know it or to not be able to do the job as well as they can. If you show up and you know your shit, that's really know your shit. Um, know your doctrine, know your regulations, um, study, make an effort. I, I think that will pay off exponentially. So know your shit. I guess that's my number, my number two piece of advice. <laughs> number one, do your job. Number two, know your shit. <laughs> you go. Got it. Um, and number three, I, uh, Surround yourself with good people. And I, I will say, I can't think of any situation except one out of all the instances I've gone through where it's been guys that were my peer level. So guys my age or, or guys at my experience level or, or flying level, whatever, however you want to measure that, whatever metric you want to use to measure it, they were never the guys that were a concern or caused me any grief or sexually harassing, it always came from higher echelons or up the chain. Guys that had been around for a long time over much senior in rank and experience. So those guys that were my peer level were always cheerleaders and always supported me and were always willing to give me the good advice or the sometimes hard advice that maybe I didn't want to hear. And they were awesome and I, I wouldn't trade them for anything. And I keeping those people around me and making sure I was listening to those voices really got me through some of the harder times when I wanted to quit or maybe I got myself into a bad situation or made some bad choices. And I, I thought there was no way out. Those guys who were like, fuck them summer or, you know, like the, my reticence, who told me that I was just as capable as anybody else that was applying for the program. Make sure you surround yourself with good people. And, and that will really, that will keep you keep you going forward on the bad days. The tribe. The tribe is so important. The tribe, yes. In in a world in a world where everyone is an individual. Find your tribe. Find your tribe. Yep. 
Well, Miss Summer, it has been such an honor. Thank you so much for imparting all of this information on us and sharing your experiences candidly. I think it's really important for people to find, speaking of tribes, community and shared experiences, especially in, you know, the unique field that we have found ourselves in. So thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you so much for thinking what I have to say is interesting. I think you're crazy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I always think you're interesting and you're just one of my favorites. Well, that that, uh, feeling is very mutual. And as always, we want to hear from you. Reach out to us at ValkyrieProjectUS.com to send ideas, shout outs, personal testimonies, or stories you'd like to share. We are also on Facebook and Instagram as Valkyrie Project US, so be sure to like and follow those pages to stay up to date. Do today what others won't. Do tomorrow what others can't. Thanks for listening.